Julie Ryan, noted psychic and medical intuitive, is ready to answer your personal questions, even those you never knew you could ask. For more than 25 years, as she developed and refined her intuitive skills, Julie used her knowledge as a successful inventor and businesswoman to help others. Now, she wants to help you to grow, heal, and get the answers you've been longing to hear. Do you have a question for someone who's transitioned? Do you have a medical issue? What about your pet's health or behavior? Perhaps you have a loved one who's close to death and you'd like to know what's happening. Are you on the path to fulfill your life's purpose? No matter where you are in the world, take a journey to the other side and ask Julie Ryan. Hi everybody, welcome to the Ask Julie Ryan Show. I'm so delighted you could join us this week because we have Dr. Sarah Kerr with us and she brings the sacred to the death and dying, which is something that's lacking in a lot of cases, especially in our Western society. You guys are going to love her. She's so wise and knowledgeable. So Dr. Sarah, thanks for joining us. Welcome, Julie. It's lovely to be here. Thanks for having me. You and you can just call me Sarah. Okay, good. All right. I didn't bring my palm branch or otherwise I would fan you if I had it. Everybody, let me tell you about Sarah. Dr. Kerr founded the Center for Sacred Death Care because she knew what it's like to be sensitive to the spiritual dynamics of death and dying in a culture that doesn't recognize or value that skill. As a sacred death care practitioner and teacher, Sarah Kerr, PhD, is passionate about helping clients and students find the healing gifts that accompany death and loss. That's a new twist on it. Most people don't think that there are healing gifts that are associated with such a heart-wrenching occurrence in our lives, and we all go through it, unfortunately, and we're all going to go through it, too. Dr. Kerr has a PhD in transformative learning with a focus on contemporary ritual healing. We're going to be talking about that. I can't wait to hear what that is. She's been a student of cross-cultural energy healing for almost three decades and has studied with many indigenous and Western teachers. Can't wait to hear about that as well, because I'm a healer too. I do a lot of energy work, medical intuitive and energy healing. So I'm sure we'll have lots to discuss with that as well. Let's just start off with when you have a client who comes to you and says, dead people are talking to me, what do you say to them and how do you help? Well, um, it depends if they need help. Maybe dead people are talking to them and it's fine. Good point. You know, so <laughs> sometimes they're perfectly happy um, to have their dead people talking to them. And sometimes what I do is help people understand what that language can look like because as you know well they're not talking like we're talking they're talking through symbol and image and synchronicity and sensation and feeling and dream and intuition and all of those different aspects of language and so i help people understand what that can look like and how to reply i think about it like a call and response like a ping pong game from this side of the river to, to the other, back and forth. And so if, if someone is experiencing things that feel to them like a communication, but they're not sure what that is or what to do with it, or if they would like to be in connection, but they're not, then I can help them deepen that. Why do spirits speak in symbols and in individual words and, and fractions of sentences and phrases? Why do you think that is? I I think about it like um, developing a glossary. So I often say, you know, if I were to fly to Papua New Guinea and get off the plane and try and have a conversation, there would be a lot of kind of grunting and pointing while we figured out the language. And we, you know, we in bodies have vocal cords. We can move air past vocal cords. So we can actually create words. But people from the spirit realm are speaking more at a level of consciousness or like the same they're, they're, it's a more energetic transmission than a verbal transmission and we need we don't have especially in western culture we don't have a lot of language to talk about energy we don't have a lot of subtleties you know in cultures you know the 
the anecdote is that the Inuit have a thousand words for snow. In, in cultures that value something, they have a lot of nuance for it. We have a lot of nuance for brand names for toothpaste, right? That's what we value. But we don't value energy. And so this communication happens in energy. And as we learn it, we have to put language on top of it. So we put colors or feelings or images because that's how that conversation happens. That is the best explanation I've ever heard. And I've been in this space for 30 years. I, I feel like I want to give you a standing ovation. That is brilliant and so concise and so easy to understand. That just makes so much sense. And especially in the energy work that I do in the healing work, the information comes in in symbols. And I may tell you, your elbow looks like a bowl of whipped cream or something crazy. And it's a metaphor for us to get some sign of some sense of a of an idea of what the energetic healing is that's happening so that we can integrate it into our bodies. And I had a neuroscientist tell me one time that symbols bypass the conscious mind and go right into the subconscious. So they're more easily integrated into the body. And they also, I would agree with that. Absolutely. They also you know, Jung has a line about a symbol being encoded information, right? It's encoded energy. So a symbol has a, you know, when we talk about things being rational, that's a ratio, A equals B. There's always a direct ratio. But symbols are, are non-rational in that the ratio is expansive. A symbol can mean so many different things and have such depth to it. And you can keep exploring and deepening and stretching that symbol. So often, you know, my work is about soul and the soul operates in symbols. So often clients will say to me, you know, I feel like I'm on a conveyor belt or I'm on a dead end or um, I, I'm trying to figure out how to cut this cord. And those are all symbolic ways of describing the energetic dynamic that's happening for them. And so we can work with that symbolic language giving it new symbols, stretching that out. Symbols are so powerful as ways of both communicating information and shifting information by how we shift those symbols. I knew I was going to learn a lot from you. I didn't expect to learn this much in the first two minutes of the conversation. <laughs> I love talking about Oh, this. my goodness. Wow. Well, another question along those lines. I always tell my clients when we're talking with spirit with their deceased loved ones or whomever, Elvis or whoever they want to talk to, that when they give us information, it may make sense to them at that time. It may make sense later. It may be pertaining to something that hasn't happened yet. How do you explain that? So the Western understanding, first of all, this is fun. These are straight in their conversations. You know, sometimes I do a lot around the circle chat, but let's just go right to I'm it. I'm a businesswoman, honey. I'm just like, cut to the chase. Let's get the information and move on. Time is culturally constructed. Meaning? And in Western culture, we have a picture of time that it's a straight line and the past is behind us and the future is ahead of us. And we're always moving somewhere along that line. And we can't reach those two things. That's that's the Western. It's kind of time as an arrow. It fits with a lot of capitalist notions of productivity and progress. But that is a particularly Western view of time. Different cultures have different views of time. And there are so many ways of understanding time and what time is and how it works. One that I think is useful for your question is a Buddhist understanding of time with a sense of what's called the fourth time or deep time. And instead of seeing time as a straight line arrow, that we're always here and the past and future are unreachable, time is seen as more circular. And the present is a dot. It's this present moment. And the past and the future circulate around it. And the more present we can get, the more the past and the future become available to us. So that's where when we get really grounded in our intuition or really centered, we can tune in and, and find things that are maybe happening in different times. So I think if we, if we think about time as being much more malleable than we imagine in Western culture, then the rules about when the past is and when the future is and when the present is, those get a little bit mixed up. And so you can do healing that 
heals the past. And you might even be able to do healing rituals that prevent something from happening in the future. When we get really centered, the past and the future circulate around us and we can touch it all. Fascinating. I, I've read and heard from experts, many experts, that we live multiple lifetimes concurrently. And that makes my head want to explode from a human perspective because I'm like, what? I feel like Scooby-Doo, you know, in the cartoon. What? And so that plays into it, certainly, with the circular time thing. How does it play into it with multiple lifetimes being lived concurrently? You know, I have a great respect for the mystery. I have a great respect for the mystery and a great humility about how much I or even we can understand from this perspective of being embodied humans. We have a certain view, but my dog sees things that I don't see. You, know, there's, there's, you don't have to go very far to get different views. So I think the universe and the cosmos is so profoundly complex that we, from our perspective, are trying to make sense of it. We put a picture on and we, we say, okay, well, I'm in a lifetime. There must be other lifetimes, but there's more than one. So we, we, we lay this map over it, but the map is very generalized and very limited by us. So there is something incredibly magnificent and complex going on. And we know that we don't just come through once that there's some kind of repetition or repeating or returning. I don't worry myself too much about the details of that, about trying to figure out, you know, people say, well, how many souls are there? Were there that many souls a thousand years ago? And how many souls are there space for? Like that's, that's putting it in rational ways of trying to make it add up. It doesn't add up. But once we let it not add up, we can be with the mystery and say, okay, what's more important here? Is it important to understand how many lifetimes we are and this or that, or to find a healing path through whatever situation we're dealing with. You know, that's more interesting to me than kind of the, the nuances of the cartography. Right. Don't get stuck in the weeds is what I always say, because, yeah. you know, you'd be in the weeds for forever and never find your way out of there. But what's the bottom line? What's How does this help us? You, you call yourself clergy for the unchurched. What does that mean? So, you know, if you were in the hospital or in hospice and you were going through a hard time, the staff there might say, would you like to see a clergy person, right? And if you were Christian or Jewish or Buddhist or whatever, Islamic, you, Muslim, you would ask for a person who has that forte. I'm kind of like that in that I don't speak every language around spirituality. I, I would come and tell you, in this frame, which I define as kind of nature-based spirituality, spiritual but not religious, the, the big umbrella of there's something we don't understand what it is, and the people who resonate with what I resonate often, I would imagine, resonate with what many of the listeners resonate with, which is a, a, a larger respect for spirituality, but they don't necessarily have a language for how to approach it. Or, in my experience, in my sort of zone around death and loss, don't have a, a ritual pathway for how to get through it. That's what religion offers us, is a, a set of rituals. It's one of the things it offers, a set of rituals to navigate this challenge. And so I say, all right, here's a framing of what's happening. This talks a lot, sounds a lot like some of the things we've been talking about. Another religion would frame it in another way. And here's a pathway. If this is the world, if this is the spiritual dynamic that's happening, how do we make our way through this? As a dying person, as friends and family of a dying person, how do we navigate that? How do they navigate that? How do you help them navigate that? Well, you know, it really depends on what situation they're in or what place they're in in that experience. Sometimes people come to me and they're dying. And they, um, it's usually through illness, sometimes age, but mostly illness. And they have been working as hard as they can. You know, I kind of see it like a conveyor belt. I talked about that before. As they've been trying to get their way back to health. 
And at some point, they realize that's just not going to work anymore. And they turn, they look forward, and they see that their death is what's coming. And they don't have any idea how to do that. We've been trained to do this. But to actually say, okay, this is it. I am going to die. How do I do that well? How do I do that consciously? How do I do that in a way that leaves my family with some skills? How do I die in a way that helps my children face future deaths or or even just helps my children face my death? So for them, it's really mapping out where they're going, giving them a sense of the geography of what happens and what happens as the spirit leaves the body, what happens as you approach that, and what the ritual practices are before, during, and after death to help someone navigate that. So sometimes those are my clients. Sometimes it's the caregiver. Sometimes the dying person, for whatever reason, they're not the one contacting me, their wife or their daughter. It's usually women. And sometimes I work with people who are dealing with what I call deathly events. You know, somebody died and the windows are opening and closing, the lights are going on and off. Or somebody died and it doesn't feel like they're all the way there. Or uh, somebody died 20 years ago or 50 years ago. You know, often it's a sibling or a baby that didn't get fully acknowledged and honored. And maybe that child didn't actually get ritually transmitted across the river. So maybe we need a ritual to help them get across to the village of the ancestors. I worked with a woman yesterday's first call with her and her husband died by maid. In Canada, we have something called medical assistance in dying, which is a uh, legalized, socially supported um, euthanasia. You, basically, you can you can die with medical help. Her husband died, and as he had the maid process, she felt a part of her get sucked with him. She said, like, and she's not this way inclined. She said she felt this part of her soul get stretched out, and she had to grab it and bring it back. And it's now been four months later, and she doesn't feel like she's all the way back. And she doesn't know who to talk to about that. So she calls me. I get those kind of... People don't know who else to call, so they call me. God bless you for being there for him and being the one that's available to talk to them. Goodness. All right. So ritual to help the person pass. I have always thought of the ritual is for the family of the deceased. I never thought about that the family or that the dis, that person who's just died needs the ritual to help them as well. Can you say more about that? The image I have is that we're on this side of the river at the village of the living. On the other side of the river, it's the village of the ancestors and there's a river between. And, you know, every culture, every spiritual tradition has a different map of the the journey after life, but they all generally have a here and a there and a time in between, right? There's a journey, the river sticks, you know, there's, there's a passageway we have to make. And most people make it across the river just fine, but it's, it's supported by the ritual work that the family does. And sometimes people don't get across. And there are different reasons they don't get across. And sometimes it's, well, there's a lot of reasons they don't get across, but that's, that's not the question you asked. What does that ritual do? The ritual, you know, the way I, I imagine it and the symbol, the metaphor of it is that we build them a canoe and we put our hands on the stern of the canoe and we push them out. Right? And the ancestors reach out and they pull them the rest of the way home. And so that that ritual when we ritualize that process and people are really clear that that's what's happening, the person gets where they need to go and the people here let go. Because sometimes people don't want to let go. Right? And there are ways threads of us get stuck in different places, but we want them completely over there and we're completely here. Then we can be in conversation in a way. There's a kind of clean differentiation Whereas if we're tangled up, if they're here, if, you know, I worked with a woman who's, she was in her late 20s. She was a twin. Her twin brother died a month after they were born. 
And all her life, she had this experience. And often people say, I don't tell very many people this, but then I know we're on the, we're on the magic part there. She says, I often feel like I'm looking through his eyes. And I often feel like I'm living my life through his experience. And I can't explain it, but it just feels like he's with me. And so we did some looking and some working and probably that sort of seems like what's happening. So we did a ritual for her to send him across, right? For her to say, this is not where you belong. You belong over there. And it was actually, you know, I, I do less in-person work now because of COVID. Uh, it's just shifted that way and I haven't really shifted back. But this was a ritual we did in a, in a cemetery in Winnipeg in November, which is a cool, cool, cold place to be. And it was at his grave. And I was in Calgary, which is a province away, on a cell phone with the headphones. So I was with her in the cemetery. She had four or five people sitting in a circle in the cemetery around her, kind of creating a container. Because when you're doing this healing work, there are lots of, lots of souls in cemeteries who would like this help. And we needed to say, no, this is not for you. Sorry, we're here for, for them. And then she had a number of friends in different places across the country who all had bonfires going that night, all holding space for her and him. And we did a couple of months, maybe three months of work leading up to this ritual. And this ritual was a disentangling of her and of him and actually of their mother, who was also entwined in this. And her, their grandmother, who had been a midwife, showed up very strongly and came to take him back. She did that ritual. She stopped seeing the world through his eyes. Fabulous. Well, I was just going to ask you to describe a, a ritual that's a non-religious ceremony you just did. So you got my you got my wavelength on that. It's interesting who shows up to help crossover. I call I call them the welcome to heaven committee. It's like when I was a kid, there was there were these women that if you moved into a new neighborhood, they'd bring you a basket of pastries and fruit or whatever. And they called them themselves the wet welcome wagon ladies. And so I just stole that the welcome to heaven committee. And it's interesting who shows up. I'm not surprised that it was his grandmother. I love that. You say that that you think it's arrogant for our Western civilizations, our modern Western civilizations to not believe in spirituality. I believe that people have been able to see and feel this stuff since the beginning of time. And it's just been in what, the last 100 years, 150 years that in our Western civilizations, especially we've become disconnected. Why is it arrogant and why has that happened? Two questions there. Why has it happened? I think a big root of it goes back to the separation of religion and science, right? of church and science, and Galileo and Copernicus, right? We're, we're the experiencers of that, where at one point you couldn't research something that the church didn't say was true. So those two things were intertwined, and it was heresy to ask questions that countervened that prevailing doctrine. And so for lots of good reasons, we separated science and religion because we need to be able to ask questions independent of dogma. But when we separated science and religion, we kind of forgot about spirit and energy. And science took everything that was material and the five senses, and that was the whole development in Western culture. I'm talking about the development of that kind of scientific approach, which is very empirical and counting and weighing and measuring and the physical. Religion took religion, but spirit is different than religion. And the spiritual aspect of who we are is different than the religious. And so somehow that fell out. Science says, well, that's not our department. But religion doesn't really cover it. So there's this in-between part, which is a, a natural objective reality of human existence, right? We have a spiritual sense. We have a spiritual aspect to us. We, you know, we, there are things that can't be weighed and measured. Love, kindness, compassion, truth, 
those are those are the spiritual aspects of it. But they don't just live with religion. So those got separated. And and they all went over there and, and religion owns them, but that's not really how it works. So I think we separated those in that way and we we didn't do ourselves a service. We need to have some still a language to talk about soul and spirit that's not wedded to religion. So that's how I think how that split happened and and why it continues to be that way and why it's a little bit arrogant. And that's, you know, it's a strong word. I think it's true. Western culture has this sense that we can figure everything out. Given enough time and enough machinery and dissecting and taking apart, we can answer it all. It's just, it's just there waiting for us to answer. But this goes back to what I said earlier about humility and the mystery, that really it, it is far more grand and complex than we will ever be able to answer. And, and we need a way back to hold that, to hold that mystery because death is mysterious and death is spiritual in that big spiritual sense of the word. What's ritualistic dying? <laughs> what is ritualistic dying? I don't know that that's necessarily a term I would attach a lot of weight to what I think maybe you're getting at and maybe a way that I would say it instead is dying in a way that honors the soul. So that when we're alive, body and soul are together. We know that, we know that in, in our words and that that's, that's health and that's wholeness. As we move towards our death, body and soul start to separate. And sometimes it happens suddenly, but often it happens slowly. And at death, we completely make that severing. But as, as we're moving towards death, it happens a little bit. You know, so we're, we're, it's gradually happening as we're moving towards that. Body returns to the earth and soul continues. So we have these two aspects of us. And mainstream Western medicine, for the most part, addresses the body. Thank goodness. And they do a fantastic job. And it's critical. A good hospice and palliative care. It's vital. But there's another path or another reality of what's happening, and that's the soul that's separating. And it's not compromised or ill. It's just leaving behind this old shell. And so what happens with it? And what are the, you know, in... in as we care for the body, we have certain markers. We say, okay, their blood pressure does this. We need to intervene this way. Or they're having this symptom. Here's a response. Here's how we bring comfort. There's a set of um, indicators and treatment options. And what I would say is that there are equally indicators and, and treatment options for the soul. As someone's dying, they start to have certain feelings, certain experiences that are soul-based experiences that aren't body-based and how to help them move through that as they approach the end of their life, as they die, that moment of separation, and as they continue their journey. And so that soul-based palliative care is, is a kind of parallel to body-based palliative care. In body-based palliative care, the interventions are medication, mechanical support, all the things you get in hospitals. For the soul-based palliative care, the interventions are rituals. That's the treatment option. So that's when someone's distressed because they're dying and they're still estranged from their daughter, it's a ritual that we can use to bring healing for that. Or um, when someone doesn't seem to be dying and there's something they're stuck with, but, but they can't let it go. It's a ritual that allows them to let it go that they can keep moving. When someone dies, the rituals around the deathbed serve both them and they serve the family members. So those rituals, the ritual approach to dying is really how we operationalize a soul-based approach to dying. Fascinating. I never thought about making peace with an estranged family member or loved one as a ritual, but you're, but I'm with you on that that I work with a lot of people at the end of their lives as well and with families. And 
And I can tell how close to death they are based on what I have termed the 12 phases of transition, which mm-hmm. is a configuration of angels and the spirits of deceased loved ones and pets that surround the person as they're dying. And I always ask three questions. Are you ready to go? Are you in pain? What do you need to the person who's dying? Most of the time it's telepathically. And oftentimes they'll say, I need to see my sister or I need to... I need to say goodbye to whomever. And one story comes to mind. I was working with a family in Athens, Greece, and this was a retired admiral in the Greek Navy. And I was working with his wife and he, he'd been unconscious for a while. And, and he was telling me telepathically he wanted to see his sister. So I said to his wife, he wants to see his sister. Does he have a sister? And she said, oh, yeah. And I said, well, can you have her come over? And she said, well, not really. She lives in Australia. And I said, well, get her on the Zoom or FaceTime or whatever. And she did. And although he couldn't communicate with her himself, he knew she was there. That was what satiated him and let him go ahead and pass within the next day or so. And I never thought of that as a ritual, but you're absolutely right. I think it's a beautiful way to look at that. The other thing that's interesting about that too is my favorite hospice doctor, whose name is also Carr, Chris Carr, you know, Chris Carr. Yeah. Chris Carr. And he says that in his research, 90% of people at the end of their lives see the spirits of pets and deceased loved ones, either in dreams or visions. And so I work with the family a lot and then I'll say, well, my grandmother's hallucinating. I'll say, no, she's not. She's actually seeing them. What do you think happens when that's going on? 90%, that's a pretty big number that his research is showing. Yeah, I'm gonna just refer back to the other thing you're talking about, about rituals around estrangement. Sometimes the estranged person still is estranged, right? right? And then you can do a ritual that doesn't involve them, that involves the dying person making peace, even though you can't involve them. What's that look like? How do you do that? Well, it might be uh, speaking to them, writing a letter to them. Basically, if the if the dying person wants to bring peace, as you cross the river, the lighter your canoe, the easier the journey, right? The less you take with you and the more you can leave on this side, the more you can say that I'm sorry, I forgive you, please forgive me, I forgive myself, all of that. The more you can do that, if it's coming from a really sincere place, the easier the journey is. So sometimes people need to say that, right? I'm sorry, I forgive you, all of that, even though the other person isn't available to hear it. So it's said in a way at a soul to soul level, right? The other person can't consciously hear it, but the dying person says, this is, this is my part of this and I leave this here. So that's a ritual practice if we can't connect with them directly. Well, and that's ancient because yeah. I was raised Catholic, 12 years of Catholic schools, Roman Catholic, and and part of the end of life ceremony for that as somebody's dying is priests will come in and they'll hear the dying person's confession. In the older generations, not so much now, but that was, yeah, you confess, you know, the things that you've done that you want forgiveness for and all of that, because then it's it's, you're not going to heaven with burdens. So interesting, I can see a correlation there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Wow. What do you think's happening when someone is seeing their, at the end of their lives, they're seeing deceased loved ones and pets, spirits? I'm impressed with Chris's 90% because I wouldn't say that's, uh, and the folks I work with is not as high as 90, it's high. And it, it doesn't only happen for the dying person, it can happen for the people around them. Once the portal starts to open, the ancestors and the other world are a little more present. And so the whole family system is involved. It's not just the dying person. It's everybody in that family system. Have you ever heard of Cozy Earth Bedding? It's your ultimate luxury escape. Cozy Earth sheets are temperature regulating and incredibly soft, and they even have a 10-year warranty. They're made from organic bamboo and silk, are hypoallergenic, and even antimicrobial. Cozy Earth sheets are so amazing, they've been on Oprah's favorite things list for five years in a row, 
and I have them on my bed right now. So if you're ready to elevate your sleep, Cozy Earth has a special offer for just for my listeners. Go to CozyEarth.com and use the code AskJulie for a 35% discount. That's C-O-Z-Y-Earth.com and use code AskJulie for a 35% discount. Upgrade your sleep with Cozy Earth Bedding. I love them and so will you. You know, um, I was saying that most, most traditions have a here and have a there and have an in-between. And there are different versions of what that looks like, but that's the core component of it. And most of them have a guide. There is someone who conveys us from the here to the there, right? We don't travel alone. The ferryman across the river sticks, the grim reaper. There are, there are these different, well, grim reaper is a little bit different, but there are these beings who convey us, who are the pilots of the canoe. And I think that's what people are seeing, that there are supporting beings when people have near-death experiences, when they are on an operating table or they're, they're otherwise healthy, but they dip onto the other side and then they come back. What they see in that journey is very often these supportive beings who show up. Either it's a family member, it's a, a pet, it's maybe someone they don't actually know, but it still shows up as a human figure. Maybe it's a, a spirit being, a deity. Maybe it's just a, a warm feeling of love and light. There's some... There's some wisdom, some being that knows the way. And they start to show up before someone dies. And one of the words for those beings is psychopomp beings. And I actually have a free short little mini class on my website called An Introduction to Psychopomps that you can download. And it really talks deeply about them. But they're these, these beings that convey us. And they start to show up before people die. And I did a, a wonderful training once. Um, it was years ago in this, but in the same kind of realm. And the facilitator had us in a in a shamanic journey state go and find a death to which we had permission to be present, and watch and learn what happened. And so I rattle away and I go off and I find myself in this hospital room, and there's. There's a, a body in the bed and some older person is dying and all the family is around the bed and there are doctors and everybody's around the body. And standing in the back of the room are four beings. It's like a, they're all in lab coats, but they're human animals. One's a cougar, one's a raven, but they have lab coats and little pocket protectors and they're standing on two legs. <laughs> and I walk in and they saw me and these are the psychopomp beings, right? These are the spirit beings that were waiting waiting for the body and soul to separate, and then they would step in and they would accompany them. And it was so interesting because I walked into this space and they looked at me and they kind of waved and they came over and they shook hands. It was like, oh yeah, I, you know, I'm the anesthesiologist. Okay, I'm the occupational therapist. I'm the death doula. I'm the psychopomp. It was a very um, beautiful image of all the beings that come together. We have those on this side of the river and we have those who come across. And so that's, that's who they're seeing. They're seeing what they're seeing. They're seeing beings who are coming to welcome them and support them and show them the way. Mm -hmm. I agree. People are so afraid to die. And I think that it's been ingrained in us, especially in our Western religions and society that, oh, you better behave or you may fry instead of fly when you die. How is that do you, a Catholic saying? I haven't heard that. Isn't that great? Yeah, I heard that from my parish priest. Isn't that great? He goes, because people are so afraid. They don't know whether they're going to fly or fry. And Oof. and he, he's hilarious. He's Irish. He's 75. And he's just like, you know, forget the dogma. Here's the bottom line. And so it's interesting to me how people are so afraid. And I do this exercise called the walk to heaven, which is like a dress rehearsal of what's going to happen when their spirit and their body separate. And it really allays a lot of the fear. Is there something that you do that's a ritual or how do you help people get over the fear of, oh, I'm going to go burn in eternity because I stole a cookie when I was five out of the cookie jar? That's a particular kind of fear. People have different fears of dying. Right. That's a particular fear that comes from a particular religious, you know, tradition. But there are other fears people have too. People are afraid of dying because what if they meet their abuser on the other side? 
important. Or um, I worked with a woman who had been married twice, loved both men, and they had both died. She was just in distress. What if she's going to meet both of them there? How is she going to navigate that? So there are different things people are afraid of. And, and sometimes people don't even know what they're afraid of. They just have grown up like all of us, or most of us, me and many people, um, have grown up in this Western culture, which says death is scary. Death is dangerous and death is scary. And so like we just learned these things. So we're, we're afraid because we think it's dangerous and scary. But really, when I dig into it with him, I'm like, what, what are you afraid of? What, what are you afraid of? And sometimes they're afraid of the dying part and the physical process. Then you do all the work with the hospice and palliative care folks and you support and, and allay those fears. But sometimes they just don't know what they're afraid of. They're just afraid. And so giving them a, a map of that territory, uh, I, I have a set of three different maps are in a program called the soul's journey, which is this, how do you actually understand what happens as body and soul separate as those beings come across what are the processes that you're going through what happens when you get there what's the arc of the soul's journey and reincarnation how does that all work because in western culture we basically just say well it's a light switch and it goes off and you're done and you're done and you're gone and you're not connected to anything and that's quite scary too right? if we make death uh, we don't even have a word for how much nothing it is. It's like it's non-existence and non-connection. No wonder we're terrified of that because we're relational beings and we need to be connected to feel safe. So if we can reframe and say, okay, you're going to the village of the ancestors where everybody else went, and this is how the relationship between the village of the living and the village of the ancestors works, and we start to say, you're not going to be gone that's a light switch goes out, your body goes, but there's something else. So it's often, it's often kind of a, an intellectual process at the beginning is what are you afraid of? And okay, here's what's actually happening. Is it still scary? And often that will dissolve that. And then if there are deeper kind of fears that can't be uh, unwound by that, then we work ritually on those. And those are more energetic patterns than, than mental patterns. Well said. You're a shaman and an energy healer with a PhD. How do you integrate all of those from the linear thinking doctorate to this woo-woo stuff on the energy healer and shaman plane? How do you integrate it all together in the work that you do? You know, um, that's an interesting question. The... Um, my academic work, you know, it teaches me to explore what's there, right? To ask questions and to think critically and to create models and to, you know, articulate and describe and explore. And all those academic skills, I just take to this other world, but it's, it's giving this other world full validity and credence, right? If I, I just take it at face value. Right? They are seeing their grandmother coming to get them. Right, The soul is leaving the body. There's nothing metaphoric about that. There's nothing. Um, it's just the most normal thing. You know, in Western culture, we make these rules. We say there's normal and there's paranormal, real, unreal, natural, supernatural. We have all these, this line. And then everything on the other side of the line, we just discard. And I just, that line just has no validity, validity for me. It's all real. And if you take it all as real, like this woman who said, I just felt part of myself get sucked out when he died. That's what happened. How are we going to address that? So it, it's, um, I find it really fun to be back and forth. And it took me a long time to develop the confidence to be able to stand so fully on that side. And I'd be curious about you in this because you also occupy both these realms. You know, sometimes people say to me, I, how do I talk about this to people? And and it did, it it took me a long time to just live there, right? And with no apology, no diminishment, no, well, you know, you never know, this might be kind of, no, just like, this is what's happening. But the more I stand there, the, the more clear it is. I call that golden ovary courage. Because, <laughs> you know, 
Guys have breast balls, girls have golden ovaries. You and I have golden ovary courage because it does take courage to put yourself out there. And I and it, I like you, I thought, oh my God, people are going to think I'm just nuts. And then you get to a point. And I think some of that comes with age where at this point, I'm just kind of like, whatever. If you think I'm a nut job, fine. What do you want to talk about? The weather, football, I, I can talk to you about whatever. But this is what I do and this is how I do it. If it's for you, great. If it's not, fine. Let's talk about something else. And I think that's a big difference too is I don't feel the need to convince anybody about this stuff. If it resonates with you, great. If it doesn't, that's fine too. Whatever. And I I would imagine that you probably feel the same way. How'd you get into this business? What's the story of how'd you even get into this? Did you come from a spiritual family? No, 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 no. Lovely, wonderful family, but not spiritual. Um, uh, I've always been really sensitive. I've always been really sensitive to everything you can be sensitive to, I'm sensitive to, which is a common denominator among the people I train. You know, I train death doulas and people that do this work. And sensitivity that has been judged is a really common aspect of that. So it took me a long time to kind of claim and own and not judge my own sensitivity. Um, and then I, what's, what's the, it's a long story of how to get into this. What, what's the short version of this or the, the abbreviated version? Well, basically in my mid to late thirties, I had this huge spiritual opening where suddenly the world was talking to me in every way you could think of. It was really quite destabilizing for several years. And I, I write about it in different places that um, it was like information was coming in, in dreams, in uh, just intuitive. It was, it was an unrefined intuitive skill. You know, I'm sure you have this too. I have to learn what the boundaries are and the gates are open, the gates are closed and you open the faucet and close the faucet and you can come now and you can't come now. I was just flooded in waking life and sleeping life with information. And it, and I was living in the Bay Area in San Francisco at the time and found some shamanic teachers there who said, Oh, this is what's happening. You're, you know, you're developing these skills and here's how you develop them. So while I was doing my doctorate, I was also making my way through that process of taking that flood of information and being able to strengthen my own medicine body so that I could, you know, be in control of when the faucet opens and closes and know what to do with it and keep myself safe and healthy in the process. I do the same thing. People say to me, well, if you're in a crowd of people, are you scanning everybody? And I said, no, I turn it on and off. It will. It takes me a nanosecond. First of all, I think that that's unethical to do that. Second of all, it's none of my darn business. And I don't really want to know. If I'm in a crowd of people, I go, okay, that one's got arthritis. That one's got a, you know, cavity that they need filled, whatever. No, I'm not interested in that. I just do regular stuff and then I turn it on and off. Well, people will say to me, they they may t- do to you too. They'll say, well, what are you seeing? I'll say, well, I'm not seeing anything. I don't have my radar turned on. Let me turn my radar on. And then we'll we'll get to that. When you are working with death doulas and funeral directors and hospice workers and people like that, I've heard you say that you teach them to balance their energy so they can stay focused on the task at hand. Please say more about that. First of all, I want to thank you for having done so much research. I appreciate that. You know, this, it, it's, it's a, it really shows. It makes for a deeper, beautiful conversation. How do I help them balance their energy? That's a little bit what I was talking about. Right. right? For people who are sensitive and don't, um, first of all, don't know how to own and claim that as a superpower, that that is what you need. When you're doing soul work, you can't look at a thermometer to get the information. You have to feel and sense. That's You become the tool, the measurement, the metric kind of of what's happening at the soul level. So honoring it and then and getting it kind of organized so that it's flowing. That's the first step. So that you name it and you, you've got the off on switch. That's the first step. And then the next step is, okay, once I've got this kind of figured out, then how do I amplify it? And how do I deepen my capacity? How do I 
open up more channels, get more specific, get more subtle in what I can receive. So some of it's about that receptive, perceptive, energy-based part of it. And some of it, and I work with people who are professional in this space and also people who just want to know this for their own interest to help their families. The other thing is helping people learn how to navigate their grief or, or be in a space that's filled with grief and not lose their center. Right? Because often people are very sensitive or very empathic and they can feel other people's feelings. And so that's part of it. It's not just spiritual energy, but it's, it's emotional energy to be able to feel on the outside edge of your aura, for instance. I can feel your grief, but I'm feeling it out here. I'm not feeling it in here where I'm taken down by how incredibly sad this is. I honor that it's sad, but I keep a certain degree of neutrality because I'm no use to you if I fall into the hole of being sad too. So a lot of it is teaching people energy techniques for dealing with their own empathic grief in the space and then afterwards so that they can stay clear and not get burned out by being with all that intense emotion because there's a secondary trauma possibility there. Can you please share a technique that you teach those people of how to keep the grief on the outside of their energy field, like you just talked about versus basically integrated, integrating it into their body and their own spirit. Well, in a way it's as simple as that, but some people have never actually registered that they can move their awareness out. So it's the practicing. So when I'm in a space with, with dying people, with families of dying people, or when I'm you know, I'm at a party and someone says, oh, you're a death doula. Suddenly out comes the story mm -hmm. of whatever happened to their mother, father, sister, dog last week or month or year. Suddenly I'm on. And even if it's only for a few minutes, I'm on. They need me to be that. So the first thing I do is drop my energy down low and wide, right? And I often take a breath, not a big breath, but a full out exhale from my deep, deep belly, like from my pelvic floor, and I drop down and I get really quiet and slow and I have all the time in the world for them. Mm. And that, that low end, that wide bottom, nothing you say can destabilize me. You can tell me the most horrific story, the most shameful thing you feel, the most awful of awful things that are so hard to be with. I'm not afraid of it. So that, that low and deep changes something in the energetic space and makes me able to receive whatever it is they have to say. And that's one. So I go low and deep. And then I, I literally sort of take my awareness. I find it in me and I just inflate it a little bit and expand it so that it's, it's at the edges of my aura. So it's at the edge of my energetic body instead of right in the, you know, right in my heart chakra, which is where it sort of lives. I take that heart chakra energy and I move it out. And so when I feel, you know, there, there are different ways to do this, right? You can, you can cover the edge of your aura with Teflon so people's emotions just slip off. But that's not very satisfying for the people who are feeling, right? They're not feeling met. They feel like you don't get them because nothing's landing. And so if I move my awareness to the outer edge of my aura, I can still connect with them. There's still contact and landing. I receive what they're sharing and what they're feeling, but I'm receiving it in a way that gives me some space to still have some witness perspective where I can feel it, but I can have other things going on too. I'm thinking about this and I'm pulling in this and I'm paying attention to this and I'm meeting them. And it really is, you know, like you say, you can do this in a nanosecond. It's my version of turning things on. I just, yeah. okay, low, deep, in, up, there. Like, right. ah, okay, I'm here for you. And I'm not, it's a different kind of connection than I would have with a friend who I was talking to last night who's going through a really hard time, right? I'm feeling her in here, right? And I'm crying with her. And it's a really deep it's a different thing than me as a kind of counselor therapist. 
Wow. Well, and plus it helps that we're girls because a superpower of all females is we can multitask. So that's what we're, that's why I always say it's a good thing we're girls because we can multitask. Yeah. And you, I think many people can do this, but yes, multitasking is definitely a part. Of it. It's definitely part. Yeah. Cause I'm, when I'm working with somebody, I'm seeing things in my mind's eye, I'm feeling things, I'm smelling things, I'm hearing things, I'm getting divine downloads and I'm talking to them. And I always say, it's a good thing I'm a girl because I can multitask. You've come up with these maps for your clients and student. What's in a map and how's it helpful for those learning your processes that you teach? So when we were talking about people's fear of death or, or just sometimes it's, it's when people turn towards death, they don't even know what to think or feel. It's a kind of vacuum. They're not, maybe not afraid, but they just don't know. They don't know what's there. And so I often say that death is hard and sad, but it doesn't have to be confusing or frightening. And the confusing and frightening is a cultural overlay of a culture that hasn't taught us the pathways. And so these maps of the pathways, and I have three of them, and one is about, one's called um, Across the Veil, what's it called? No, the energetic dynamics of the dying process. And it's, um, it's what happens in active dying to just after the last breath. So it's basically the deathbed and just after. What's happening in that really heightened, you know, it's like the, the other side of birth, that really heightened moment when body and soul separate. Because it's not a moment, it's a slow process. You know, there's a dissolution of the elements and then slowly, and then body and soul separate, but then things are happening. So one is a map of that. One is called what happens after we die. And it's a bigger picture of the soul's journey into and out of bodies, right? We take this little journey across, but then what happens and how do we come back in? And what is, what's the kind of pathway of communication across the veil? How is that happening and where, where does that fit? And then the third is called um, grief and loss as initiation. And it's really about, for both the dying person and the those who continue to live, what's the grieving process and what, how this goes back to the very beginning, what are the gifts that are available in that process of loss? Loss is painful and hard and we would never wish it, but it happens. And if it is happening, how do we track our own path through it in a way to find what's actually the gift because that's where we grow we don't grow when days are easy and you know we're sitting on the beach we grow when we're pushed to our edge and so how do we do that so those three maps are part of a course called the soul's journey and it's a downloadable course on my website and that's really the starting place it they're they're quite um you know, there's very principles. It's not very applied at that point. It's just the framework. But then once you've got the framework, then you can apply the how-tos based on that framework. Well, piggybacking off of that, I've heard you say that grief can make you stupid. <laughs> what do you mean by that? I laughed. When I read that, I thought, Mm, yeah, you well, lose clarity. You lose clarity when you're in fight or flight. And that's what I figured you meant. But I thought, I need to clarify this. Well, that's a bit of a, you know, cheeky way to say it. But, you know, the more probably polite way would be to call it grief brain, which is when when you're grieving, especially especially after a death. Anticipatory grief can be like this, but particularly after a death. Your system is so consumed with energetically coming to terms with the reality that this person is gone, that you just don't have a lot of bandwidth. And you forget things. You can't walk from one room to the other and remember why you're there. It's just, you're, you're so stretched thin. So people are physically exhausted and they're mentally really, in some ways, kind of compromised. And it comes back. It's not a permanent stupid, but it's a temporary stupid. And, and it can be really validating to know, okay, this is a normal part of this. Yeah. I'm not losing my mind and I will get it back. Right. I have a friend who says when she goes through grief, she feels like she's living life inside a pickle barrel. 
I said, what the heck's that mean? She said, well, you know, it's kind of like you're doing it, but you're not really all there. And yeah, yeah, I agree. Oh my gosh, how funny. You, How do you guide people who have false hope or are in denial about their own end of life and their fam- and or either the person who's dying or the family and friends who are in that state? Is there, are there some words of wisdom that you can share with us on if we find ourselves in that position, how do we navigate that? You know, I, um, I have kind of a thing about the word hope and same with the word positive. When someone is dying, when they are and they reach a certain age or their physical capacity, their illness has progressed to a certain point that that we know where it's going. Now, there are always miraculous cures, but they're rare. And so people often, really well-meaning, they say, well, I'm just trying to stay hopeful and positive. I'm just being positive. But in a way, positive and hopeful are, are another way of saying denial. Because what are you hoping for? And And what I really encourage, instead of positive and hopeful is honest and optimistic. That to be honest and to be with what's true. What's true is you just got another set of tests back and your tumor markers are way up and, you know, X, Y, and Z symptoms. That's what's honest. And, And we can see where it's going. How can we live when you can name what's really happening? then you can make plans to say, okay, it's coming. How are we going to spend this last time together in a way that really matters? If you're always being hopeful, kind of miss the opportunity to be in that moment. So I I tell people not to have a sudden death if they don't have to. Because people can have years or even months or years of of warning and still not, 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 not believe it. And then suddenly in the last three weeks, it's a kind of sudden death. But if you can take that time, so I just help people unpack that. And sometimes it's the dying person who comes to me and they say, you know what, my family loves me and they can't believe I'm dying. And I feel very alone because I know it's true and no one else will admit it. So then we have a big family meeting and I orchestrate it and we just put it all, we slowly and gently get it all out on the table. And I give them tools to deal with it. And so then they're, instead of everybody kind of backed up at the edge of the living room, looking the other direction, ignoring this big elephant, they all stand shoulder to shoulder and look at it. Okay, we can do this. This is what's happening. We can do this. So that that false hope is often because they don't know what else to do. Well, and we all face our own mortality mm-hmm. when we're dealing with somebody that we love who's at the end of their lives. And, and maybe it's, in the back of our brains and we think, oh, I'm going to be there at some point. You know, yeah. what's this going to look like for me? Kind of a thing. Your comment about don't have a sudden death, it seems to me like you have experienced that people can control a lot of their passing, the time, how, who's with them, that kind of thing. Do you, you have any comments about that? Can people control their passing? You know, that's a funny thing. In in some ways we can, and in some ways we can't. So sometimes there are people who are so ready to die and they're just ready to go. It's been long and it's been hard and they're in pain and for some reason they don't die. So in that way, it, sometimes they just can't. They're ready to and, and they just can't. And their body and their soul is taking the time it needs to, to go. And the other side of that is sometimes... It feels like sometimes people can. They they know there's something. There's a, a wedding or a graduation or the last grandchild making it to come and visit. So they, they wait until people are here or maybe they wait until people aren't here. You know, sometimes it's really hard to leave when the room is full of people, especially if you really love them. It can be harder. Dying is hard. Like the separation of body and soul, there's a, a labor just like birth labor is a separating of the mother and the baby. This is, it's a separating and it can be harder to do if people are there. So, you know, that's why it's always good to give, give the dying person a little bit of time alone 
and time with with people. So people can control it and they can't. There's a, I think there's just a way this comes back to the mystery that we all have our paths here and we don't know exactly what's happening and it's not the same for everybody. And we just walk it with respect and humility and try and do the best we can and appreciate the grace when it comes. Last question. I love when you say, if you only had one more day with a loved one, what would you tell them? And do that with everyone you love. Do it every day, right? Tell them you love them. Tell them what you enjoy about them. I have a graduate of my class who was dying of brain cancer and she took the end of life pill. She lives in, she lived in Washington. And so we had a wake for her and she was there with the whole community and all of the graduates. And it was two hours long. It was so, oh my gosh, so moving. It was just amazing. And I I said, what a great idea. Let's tell people how we feel about them while they're still here, while they're still around. Oh yeah. And people, people say, well, I'm not ready to call a death duly yet, or I'm not ready to start dying yet. But when you think that getting ready to die is about creating all the love and connection possible. Why not start right away? Right? We, we should be all the time saying these things, but particularly there's no harm in starting early to turn towards that because it is. What a beautiful thing. And there comes a point where you can't do those so much. When it's right at the end, you don't have the energy for that. Yeah. So that, that window of time, you're not going backwards. You turn and look in that window of time grasping all that you can in there and making exactly like you're saying those beautiful opportunities for connection how can people find out more about you and your work i am all over the social media worlds tiktok instagram facebook all that stuff youtube uh, at sacred death care and my website is the center for sacred death care lots of information there there are lots of free downloadable little mini courses how to say goodbye to a dying person there's one on healthy energetic boundaries for death doulas, speaks to some of the things we've talked about. So lots of ways people can plug in and see little versions. And then I have a lot of um, pre-recorded courses plus some ongoing live courses. And since COVID I'm, has wrapped up, I'm just starting to do face-to-face gatherings again. Wonderful. So all that information is there. Thank you for taking the time to join us and share some of your wisdom with us because you are remarkable. And I think the work you're doing is remarkable. And I appreciate you coming on the show and and sharing your information with us. Everybody, that's it for this week. Sending you lots of love from Sweet Home, Alabama. And from Canada, too. Thank you so much. It was a delight. See you next time. Thanks for joining us. Be sure to follow Julie on Instagram and YouTube at Ask Julie Ryan. And like her on Facebook at Ask Julie Ryan. To schedule an appointment or submit a question, please visit AskJulieRyan.com. This show is for informational purposes only. It is not intended to be medical, psychological, financial, or legal advice. Please contact a licensed professional. The Ask Julie Ryan Show, Julie Ryan and all parties involved in producing, recording, and distributing it assume no responsibility for listeners' actions based on any information heard on this or any Ask Julie Ryan shows or podcasts.